0: So we have a lot of fun doing the seal and some of the other gymnastics moves that three-year-olds uh, learn. But no, we have a lot of fun with that. You know, this morning, we're, we're going to be continuing in our series in Daniel. Who's been around the last couple of weeks with Daniel? It's a great book in the Old Testament, right? The, the narrative, the story that's told, it really is fantastic. And today, we're going to be continuing that series and heading into Daniel chapter four. If uh, if you're new here, I'd encourage you, when you get home, go back and read the three preceding chapters just a fantastic story uh, of God's pr- uh, God's provision and God's sovereignty. But as we get get into chapter four, we have an interesting switch. So up until this point in the first three chapters of Daniel, we've really, as readers, been encouraged to put ourselves in in the position and read from the perspective of Daniel, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, as we head into chapter four, we're actually going to switch our perspective and now think about the position of King Nebuchadnezzar, who up to this point, he's been the the protagonist of this whole story. And now we're going to see that God has actually finally brought some transformation to his heart. Because for Nebuchadnezzar throughout the first three chapters of Daniel, we've seen that he's had these moments where he sees glimpses of God's glory, doesn't he? In Daniel chapter 1, he has the experience that after taking captive the young guys, uh, the young guys from Judah, including Daniel and the the big three, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and he finds them after that period of training that those guys put devotion to their God before anything else. And Nebuchadnezzar witnesses that they are 10 times better than anyone else. You remember that part of the story? They're 10 times more able, they're they're 10 times uh, more wise. and, And the king recognizes that these Hebrew guys that follow the Hebrew God, they're 10 times more effective. And King Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that. And then in Daniel chapter 2, of course, we have the the dream of kingdoms and and kingdoms rising and falling and the kingdom of God being sovereign over all. And Nebuchadnezzar, of course, he calls for the interpretation of the dream. He also asks that that, that those so-called wise men would actually say, "Hey, hey, here's what you dreamed and here's what it means. And of course, no one can do it. It's impossible. But then Daniel, he arrives and he's able to interpret the dream. And I want to remind you what King Nebuchadnezzar says. He says, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. But listen to that language. He says, your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. It's not his God, but he's even at that moment, recognizing that there is something great about who God is, even if he can only see it through Daniel. And then in chapter 3, we looked at last week. Lauren brought us a fantastic message of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego in the flaming furnace. You remember that part of the story? Great, great story, right? And, and then King Nebuchadnezzar, of course, sees that God miraculously provides and sustains them through the fire, and they come out of the furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar, once again, Praises God. And he says this Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But again, listen to his phrasing Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Again, he's recognizing the greatness of God, but it's not his God. Until finally, in chapter 4, we see that it begins with a transformation that's taken place in Nebuchadnezzar's heart and soul. That finally, it's not about seeing the greatness of someone else's God but God has actually had an impact in his own life. And it's an interesting shift in the structure of the book as well as now we're invited to to receive almost a confession of faith from Nebuchadnezzar as he writes an open letter to his kingdom. And we're going to pick up in the first three verses. We ready? No one's ready? No, you are ready. Good, good, good. Just a little miscommunication there. So Daniel chapter 4 verses 1 to 3 and it says this, King Nebuchadnezzar, To the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It's an open letter penned to his kingdom. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the most high God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Now, it's clear that something has shifted in the heart and soul of Nebuchadnezzar. There's been a transformation. And then after this statement, Nebuchadnezzar goes on to tell the story of how this life change happened. And as he begins to tell the story, yet again, he has another dream. This time of a great tree stretching up to the heavens, huge, visible from all over the world. It's a tree that provided for everything. It provided for animals, it provided fruit, it provided shelter. It was a great tree. But then in the second half of that dream, the tree is cut down, and only the stump remains And similar to chapter 2, this causes Nebuchadnezzar some stress. And again, he gathers his wise men for an interpretation of the dream that he's had. And sure enough, Daniel again rises to the top and he brings an interpretation of the dream. And we're going to pick up in his interpretation. In Daniel 4... And beginning in verse 19, we're going to just read the first chunk here. And as Daniel interprets, we'll get a clearer picture of the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, which was a catalyst for the transformation from witnessing the greatness of a God to that same God becoming his God. So let's begin in our reading. Then Daniel, and we're in verse 19, also called Belshazzar, the name Nebuchadnezzar gave him, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. He's saying, chill out, Daniel. Tell me the dream. Tell me the dream. Many years have passed since Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar first met. They'd been working together a long time. And Belshazzar answered, "My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries." And at this point, Nebuchadnezzar, uh oh, it's going to be one of these kind of dreams. Then Belshazzar, Belshazzar Daniel, he began to interpret. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit providing for all, giving shelter to the wild animals, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your Majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. Now, at this point, if you're Nebuchadnezzar and you hear this dream, you're like, I like this dream. (laughs) I like this dream. This sounds much nicer than the last dream you interpreted for me. I like this. This is making me feel good about myself. You're right. I am a pretty impressive guy. I've got an incredible kingdom. Everyone knows my name. I provide for all within my kingdom. I'm a pretty big deal. And at this point, Nebuchadnezzar, if this was the end of the dream, it could be this great revelation of, yeah, my my self-worth is through the roof. I'm very important. Daniel, you've just, God is clearly speaking through you because you have just got this nailed. I'm a very important guy. You know, in the 1960s, there was a a little rock and roll group, some of you would remember, called The Beatles. And in 1966, there was a very famous interview with John Lennon. Some of you will remember it. You remember, some of you already, don't you? And his assertion was, we are bigger than Jesus. He said that in an interview. Some of you are old enough, perhaps, to remember it. He said, we're bigger than Jesus. Those of you that are a bit younger, you might remember the parody The Simpsons did, the B-sharps. Nope, no one here. I was arming and ahhing whether to include that. Obviously, I shouldn't have. uh, Mental note for next time. But anyway, in the interview, John John Lennon asserted that, that we're more popular than Jesus. We're more popular than Jesus. Everyone in the whole world knows who we are. We're an incredibly big deal. There hasn't been a band like us ever before. And then he went on to argue that Christianity would end before rock music. Bold claims, Right. You know, in a completely different context, we see something in John Lennon at the pinnacle of their fame, their success. He's like, we are such a big deal. We're bigger than Jesus. Now, the interpretation that Daniel gives to the king isn't only one of explaining his position as the king of Babylon. But I think more significantly, it's revealing how the king saw himself. That he was bigger than God. You know, isn't it interesting when we listen to that description of the tree, it seems more appropriate that that tree, its greatness stretching to the heavens, providing for all. It sounds like a pretty amazing description for God, doesn't it? But on this occasion, Daniel reveals it in the king's own heart and mind that he believes himself to be greater than anything else. That he believes himself to be bigger than God bigger than Jesus. You know, I think in a very different way, this is an attitude that we need to wrestle with a little bit as people of faith. Now, there are very few of us here like Nebuchadnezzar or John Lennon that might genuinely believe that we are more important than God, that we are greater than God, that our power, our influence, our fame is bigger than God, bigger than Jesus. Very few of us would genuinely think that, am I right? Right, we, we, we're not really wired that way. We don't really have the risk of believing that we are more important than God. That's not a common problem that we're going to face in our faith. But for us, it expresses itself a little bit differently. And I want to take your attention to the description of the tree for a moment. Shall we see its greatness? We see it stretching t- high in the sky. But I want to focus on the tree and its provision, so we hear that the tree, it provides fruit, it provides food, it provides shelter. It is a tree of greatness, but it is a tree of provision. Now, I think it's in this key word of provision that we face our challenge when it comes to this idea of who is bigger in my life, God or myself. So I think one of the challenges that we have, particularly in, in Western Australia, is self-sufficiency. Then we come to that idea of provision, It's so easy to arrive at a point of mind and a condition of the soul that says, I do not need God. I don't need his provision. I can provide for myself. Everything that I need in life, I can create for myself. But there is a provision that is found only in Jesus. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I was feeling pretty unwell. And it, was, it wasn't just like a man cold, I was like, you know, I had headaches and I was just feeling, you know, really sorry for myself and it sounds like a man code really, yeah. Anyway, I, I had this headache and it was just hanging on for a few days and then someone gave me the age old advice, Phil, have you had any water? Have you had a glass of water? And I thought about it and I was like, not only have I not had a glass of water today, I'm not sure I've drunken any actual straight water in about five days, that's pretty bad, right? I was like, look, thinking back over my days, I haven't been drinking water. Now, I've been drinking lots of other stuff. I've been drinking tea, coffee, soft drink, but, you know, things that have got lots of water in it. But I hadn't drunk any actual water. And then I, I thought, oh, man, that's real bad. Is anyone else like that? If you think back over the last few days, geez, I'm just like Phil. I haven't had any, any water and I feel messed up inside. And then I had a glass of water. I filled up a bottle actually and I drank this water and it was, the effect was instantaneous. I was like, oh my goodness, I didn't know how thirsty I was. I didn't feel thirsty, I didn't feel dehydrated, I didn't feel that my, you know, my sickness was linked to this and it was amazing, just like this instant refreshment and then of course over the next three days I massively overcorrected and drank like six litres a day and, you know, visited the, the, the bathroom somewhat regularly. But isn't it funny that when you have that period, I don't know if you've ever had a a moment like that where you just had a glass of water and there's this instant refreshment and you're like, that's right, I need this to live. And then all of a sudden you're reminded that actually drinking water is important for my body. If I don't do that, it's going to mess up my insides. Yeah, I wonder if you've ever had one of those moments in the presence of God where you just feel His Spirit fill your soul, whether it's in a moment by yourself walking on the beach and just having a moment of prayer, whether it's in a service and you feel the presence of the living God filling your heart and it's like that glass of water and you have that reminder, that's right, I need this. I need this. But our problem is... Because we've become so self-sufficient, we're not reminded of our deep, deep need for Jesus until you drink from that living water. Remember when Jesus described himself, I'm that living water. You actually need this in the depths of your soul. You know, I think this scripture quite clearly, it's addressing pride in the life of Nebuchadnezzar our pride doesn't come from believing we're greater than God. I think our pride comes from believing we don't need God. But can I encourage you, we need him. We need him in the depths of our soul. But of course, the interpretation of the dream doesn't end here. And Daniel continues, heading towards the second part of the dream. And we're going to pick it up in verse 23. And Daniel continues, he says, your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze. And this description is more one of protection than being bound up in the grass of the field, while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. Now this is the interpretation going on in verse 24. "Your Majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms, including your own, on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Now, Nebuchadnezzar hears the second part of the dream. It's like, I don't like this dream so much anymore. I don't like this interpretation so much because what God is calling for is for Nebuchadnezzar to be humbled before him. And sure enough, 12 months later, this is exactly what happened in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. For a period of time, he loses his mind. He goes from being the greatest in his kingdom as the king of Babylon to being essentially the least in his kingdom as a man living in the forest. No longer aware of his own consciousness until seven times pass by, a number of completion in Scripture, and he's restored and is able to recognize that God is sovereign over all kingdoms. He's sovereign over his own life. So let's think about this call from heaven to be humble, to cut down the tree, to prune back the branches, speaks to a death to self a death to pride, speaks of humility. You know, St. Augustine, a a theologian of the fourth century and and a lot of his work inspired by the Holy Spirit shaped much of what the church is today. He was once asked a question, what are the ways of God? And his response was, the first is humility, the second is humility, and the third is humility. Is humility. This is the way of God. Now, I want you to think for a moment of the essential point of connection between us and our Heavenly Father. It's Jesus on the cross. And Jesus on the cross, of course, is an expression of God's incredible humility, that He became like His creation, and then He became least amongst His creation becoming a servant even to death on the cross and taking on the sin of the world, that our point of connection with God is a radical humbling of our Creator. Now, in order for us to connect with God, we too need to have a radical humbling in our own life, that the point of connection with God is at the cross of Christ, where God humbles Himself to redeem us and we humble ourselves to receive His grace. You know what I love about this picture is the stump in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. That God doesn't want to destroy his life. That God doesn't want to take it away. That God doesn't want to completely break him in his pride. But God wants to prune back the pride so that humility may grow and that greatness in him could be restored, not how he sees it, but how God sees it. You know, that's what it means to have spiritual humility is to humble ourselves before the presence of God. You know, humility, it's not about believing that we are less, believing that we are broken, believing that that we're damaged. It's not about making statements like, no, I'm not good at that, I'm, I'm bad at this or whatever it might be. It's not about thinking less of yourself. It's just about thinking of yourself less. And when we layer that over the foundation of Jesus, really spiritual humility is about thinking less of myself and thinking more of Jesus so that actually in his eyes, I can become greater. We meet him in humility at the cross. Daniel's going to continue his interpretation. And in verse 26, he says this, and he goes on to to think more of the stump. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right. Saint saying, King, be righteous. And renounce your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. So, Daniel becomes aware that the king is in a position of pride, that God's call is for him to humble himself. And then Daniel gives the framework for how we actually pursue humility within the presence of God. And it's simply repentance. What Daniel prescribes for the king is to repent, is to renounce, is to speak it out and turn from the unrighteousness in your life is to speak it out and turn from your wicked oppression of people is to actually own it and change. Let me remind you some things about what repentance is and in a a few moments where we're going to have an opportunity to come around the communion table and actually walk in this action of repentance But let me remind you some things about repentance. You know, repentance, it breaks pride. It breaks pride. I wonder if you've ever wronged a person. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because we've all done that. You've You've ever said something in anger, done something in frustration that's brought hurt to a person or a group of people or your family, whatever it might be. And you know that moment where you know you've gone too far? and you feel that, that lump in your throat, that weight in your stomach, and you're like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. That was really broken what I just did. The way I just spoke to my kids, the, the way I spoke to my wife, my husband, that fight that I started, that fight that I didn't diffuse. We all know that feeling of self-identifying something wrong that we've done. And then one of the most humbling things we can do is go to the person that we've wronged and seek forgiveness. It's one of the most challenging things to do in life, to own your brokenness before someone and go to that person, not knowing how they'll respond. So I just want you to know that I now see what I did, what I said. That was completely wrong, completely unfair. And I apologise for that. You know, that picture... You know, I, I think, honestly, it's one of the most powerful and beautiful things in life. And sometimes that forgiveness is accepted, and, and sometimes it's not. But that step of actually owning our brokenness before another person, asking for forgiveness, and making a declaration that you're going to change. Because, you know, that's the difference between seeking forgiveness and seeking repentance. Is that I'm not going to be the same anymore. I'm going to do what I need to do to make those changes. You know, we know and we have that tangible emotional sense of what that means to do that with another person. But what does it mean to live your life of faith like that with Jesus? To have short accounts and to live a life of repentance. Because every time we repent before God... We accept that we require the grace of Jesus. It reminds us of our need for Jesus. When we talk about our problem with pride, is that so often we live as if we don't need a saviour. But then when we bring our sin, our separation from God to the cross, we speak it out, we pray through it. We're reminded of our need for Jesus. And when we're reminded of our need for Jesus, he becomes more and I become less. You know, repentance, it demonstrates that God's kingdom comes first in your actions. You know, another thing that I love in in our tradition of church and and in in most traditions of Christian church is baptism. Is baptism. And one of the the things that we we ask people to do is to make a commitment or a confession of faith. And, And I want to just focus on one part of that confession. And it's simply this. Do you believe that Jesus is your Lord and Savior? Now, most of us, we're pretty good, generally, at recognizing Jesus as our Savior. But the equally important part is that he is our Lord, that he comes first in our actions, that now the way I live my life is actually governed by who Jesus is. That's what it means to say, yes, Jesus is my Lord, that there is going to be an ongoing process of transformation, growth and change in me as I seek to live my life more and more like Jesus. And when we live our lives in that way, again, we let go of personal pride and we remember our need for Jesus more and more. Yeah, I'm going to invite the the team to come and join us. And in just a moment, we're, we're going to share in communion together. And as we, we think about the communion table, you know, this is, this is something that we love to do once a month here at True North. And if you're, if you're new here or you've never experienced communion, it's just two symbols, the cup and the bread. And it's a symbol to take us spiritually to the cross and meeting God in his humility in the giving of the Son. And it's an opportunity for us in unity to gather around the table and say, Jesus, I recognize that I need you. And I'm meeting you. I'm humbling myself at the cross so that, Jesus, you might restore my life. So that, Jesus, more and more I'd live with you at my center. You know, it's an interesting phrase at the end of verse 27. And if we can pull that, that verse back up on the, the screens quickly, that would be, that'd be awesome. It says, Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. Then listen to this. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. Now, I love this idea that repentance, so Daniel's calling the king to renounce his wickedness, turn away from his, from his evil behavior. There's it's this idea that repentance is actually linked to prosperity. Now, I want to be very careful as I use that word, because here's what I'm not saying. If we're repentant before God, then God will prosper us in every arena of our life. It's not what Scripture's saying. You look at the life of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they're thrown into a fiery furnace. But here's what I do believe it's saying, is that when we seek repentance and seek to make Jesus first, He will prosper our souls he will prosper our souls so that we might know more of the glory and blessings of God. It's not a promise that we would do better in life, have a higher quality of lifestyle, nothing like that. It's that we would actually live our lives knowing Jesus more and that we would live our lives more like Jesus lived. And that is the position of soul prosperity, a life lived more and more like Jesus. Yeah, you know, I want to encourage you this morning as we gather around the table and in a moment where we're going to stand together, come to the tables either at the front or the back. And I want to challenge you in this place of the soul and your need for God, your need for Jesus to come and take the cup, to take the bread, symbolic of God's own humility on your behalf, to say, Jesus, help me to die to self. What are the branches on the tree of my life that need to be pruned back, cut down so that there can be a new prosperity defined by who you are, Jesus, in my life? Can we stand together this morning?